Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Relief funds for Georgians hit hard by Hurricane Michael are caught in the battle over President Trump's demand for a border wall. A former GOP candidate for governor is indicted for fraud, and lynching becomes a federal crime many decades too late. Political Rewind starts now. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're glad to have you with us for today's show. Let's get right to it our panel because this has been another jam-packed few days in politics both here in Georgia and nationwide and I want to give them a chance to weigh in quickly. We're joined of course by the AJC's lead political writer Jim Galloway. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday paper and he oversees the Political Insider blog at myajc.com. Hi Jim, glad to have you with us. Great to be here. Across from you, uh, first time panel member. He's been on the show as a reporter but Stephen Fowler, GPB's political reporter, joins us now. Stephen, thank you for being here. Of course. Happy Friday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie is uh, with us. She, of course, teaches political science at uh, Emory University and will soon be have that book, that Obama book published. Yes. Yeah? In, in March? February. You? Oh, February. Valentine's Day. All right. Well, we're looking forward. Tell us your name. Uh, Race in the Obama administration. All right. We're looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you about that. Uh, we know you've been working, like, really hard on that book. And Leo Smith uh, joins us. Leo is a Republican strategist. You, uh, Leo, were the Minority Outreach Director of the Georgia Republican Party for quite a while and have been credited over the years with uh, doing your best to attract African Americans to the Republican Party here in Georgia, especially not an easy task. And yet a ways to go. (laughs) And still a ways to go. All right, let's get right to it. Jim Galloway. Uh, we should say, uh, to be transparent, that, of course, we're live on the radio right now, but if people are watching the Sunday morning TV show, uh, we are. This is happening on Friday where we're at. So we are still watching the battle over the continuing resolution, the funding of the government unfold. Even as we uh, started talking, the Senate was still taking a vote on a House-passed measure to extend uh, government funding through the beginning of February, but it's significant for a reason for Georgians oh, yes. too. This, this, this is this is chaos in real time, and it's significant because last night the House tacked on uh, an extra eight billion dollars for uh, for environmental damage uh, uh, for the. Uh, mitigation for those forest fires out out west, and her, more importantly, Hurricane Michael here in Georgia and, and Florida. Yeah, but because they also, Andre, included uh, the the president's five billion. In fact, they put five point seven billion dollars into the House bill, which was passed with all mm-hmm. Republican votes. Uh, the Senate has made it clear that they do not like this measure. They don't want to put five billion into the bill. This they, is for the wall. Yeah, for the wall. I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? For the wall. Um, 
the uh, they need 60 votes, but right now they're having trouble getting all the Republicans they need on board. But that also puts Georgia's emergency relief funding in jeopardy for the time being. What is going on? Well, there's a lot of stuff. There's procedural <laughs> stuff that's going on here. So, I mean, there are the question of the rules and sort of what rules apply in the situation. Early this morning, um, President Trump actually asked uh, Senator McConnell to actually try to sort of break traditional the rules. nuclear options, and which is you know used in judicial <laughs> nomination cases. It's not supposed to be used in cases like this so that he only needs a, a clear majority to be able um, to get this through the Senate. The Senate ha has declined to do that. So, I mean, there are these interesting things. And I think it's also really important to think about when you're trying to pass a continuing resolution, which for all intents and purposes are our budget bills now, since we don't usually formally pass budgets these days, um, that there's a lot at stake. And so, you know, while there, you know, border security is certainly an important issue, it is certainly something to be discussed. When you hold up an entire spending bill because of one issue, there are uh, negative externalities. And so this is one of those places where there, there are going to be other things. So, I mean, people have been thinking about, you know, whether or not people are not going to get paid over the Christmas holiday. Mm -hmm. But then there are also these other issues about government aid going to people who desperately need it because of the way that um, natural disasters have, have, have um, caused them to to incur loss. Yeah, I think, Leo, um, I think many of the people who are fans of Political Rewind are real political junkies. They've been probably watching this unfold, but it's worth repeating. Uh, as of yesterday morning, uh, Congress, Republicans, and Democrats alike thought they had a deal with President Trump. They thought he was going to back off, that he was going to offer some alternative on wall spending so that they could pass the continuing resolution. Apparently, the president started uh, watching Fox News, started listening to Rush Limbaugh and other conservative commentators, uh, slamming him for backing away from his wall pledge. And out of nowhere, about 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon, he said, uh, I, I want the wall. If I don't get the wall, I'm not going to sign the bill. Well, you know, tr Trump is the negotiator in chief, and it's hard for me to believe that he truly had backed away from the wall. Um, I think that he really never did back away from the wall. I think that might have been, been one of his chess moves to see who's in and who's out. Um, and I think this thing's not over. It, you know, I think for Georgia and the, the relief that we expect to see, this is very telling to me because with Sonny Perdue being uh, there in Trump's cabinet and David Perdue being such a, a Yale man for his work, um, I can't imagine that there's not some game that's going to be played here that Georgia's going to be taken care of. I can't imagine David Perdue and Sonny Perdue letting Georgia farmers uh, suffer any more than they have to. Stephen, we've seen a number of members from Georgia weigh in on this. Uh, Senator Perdue issued a uh, statement. He's been really uh, active in releasing news releases and going on TV to talk about this. Uh, he said uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, it's time to get the job done. No one wants a last minute continuing resolution, but the president's priorities should always have been included. We now have funding for the border wall and disaster relief for the people of Georgia. Let's get this package to President Trump. And the House side, Austin Scott, uh, Jody Heiss, both very outspoken uh, uh, supporters of the border of the wall funding. So we've had Georgians who have uh, really spoken out and others who've kind of laid back so far on this. <laughs> well, right. And I think so far, Johnny Isaacson has not yet voted 
in the Senate and has been keeping a very, very low profile about this. And David Perdue does have to serve two masters of sorts. He has to be a defender of the president and his priorities, but also defend Georgia. And you look at the local level, you know, state lawmakers passed several hundred million dollars in emergency funding for Hurricane Michael and things 500 like that. million plus. But what we're talking about here at the federal level is in the billion dollar range with different things for peaches and blueberries and uh, crop losses and other things. So the stakes are high. And 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 face it, uh, David Perdue is now in a uh, re-election cycle. Right. Uh, since November seventh. Yeah. And he's got a number of Democrats who are looking at at this at this race coming up yeah. and thinking maybe we can maybe we can just improve just a little bit on what Stacey Abrams did. Yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah, it, it's interesting you said that uh, uh, because Andra, I think last Sunday night, uh, Purdue had his first big fundraiser for the 2020 cycle. I, I don't want to get into it this minute. Well, no, let me go ahead as long as we're there. <laughs> Purdue has been tied at the hip to President Trump for the entire first two years of the Trump presidency. Um, I've asked on this show a couple times in the last week whether he will be able to, well, whether he'll continue that and take it right through the 2020 cycle. And the answer for most people on the show has been he's got to, he's, he's bought that, he's going to have to stick with it. Things have come so unraveled for President Trump this week with the way this wall funding has fallen apart, the way he's equivocated on that, with the Jim Mattis resignation out of nowhere, with a very harsh letter about Trump. I can't help but wonder if at a certain point, even someone as devoted as uh, David Perdue is, uh, doesn't have to start looking at his own future and putting a little distance between him and the president. Well, I think we should all read some instrumentality into a lot of these decisions that have been made. The reason why people have chosen the alliances that they have is because it works for them. And so people got stuff out of it. So if we think about um, some of some Republican voters who were uncomfortable with Trump, but who elected him anyway, um, they saw, oh, this is a chance for us to, you know, cut taxes. This is a chance for us to attempt entitlement reform, even though that didn't happen. This is a chance to, you know, register in on social issues and help shape the court for another generation. Right. And so as long as things were going well and you were getting the things that you want, there's no need to change the alliance, even when there are histrionics going on on all around. Um, as I look at what's happening this week, um, it's funny, a couple weeks ago on another program someplace else, somebody asked me, is this going to be the turning point? Um, and they were thinking about the Michael Cohen conviction yeah. and um, or a plea deal. And so I was like, you know, well, I don't know. And even today, seeing how things have unraveled in the last 48 hours, um, I'm still not sure that, like, that this is the end. Yeah. And so I think that people will maintain their alliances so long it is advantageous for them to do so. If this is the start of something big and we don't know that yet, then we might start to see people jump ship. But if the narrative changes, if we're off, if the news cycle goes in a different direction and it's more favorable news, you know, a week or two from now, people who are already aligned with President Trump will, will still be aligned with him and they'll feel totally vindicated. You know, Stephen, I am proud to say that on this show, this show, we have not yet said this is the beginning of the end <laughs> over any number of events that have happened. Uh, this does feel different. Well, I mean, what you have here is you have, uh, I think, the adults in the room has been a phrase people have talked about a lot with different cabinet members and secretaries and things like that. But what you have is such a vocal rejection of policy and what you have is a vocal shift in, you know, I think 
I saw on CNN or something saying that lawmakers are troubled and deeply worried, more so than the deeply worrying things that you have here. But what you do have is entering a new era of House Democratic control and things like that. And things will be different when the government reopens. <laughs> In January. Leo, let me go back to uh, the question I asked uh, that Andre answered about David Perdue. You're a Georgia Republican. Uh, is Perdue going to stick? Will, will Georgia Republicans be happy to have David Perdue continue to be one of the uh, strongest, most energetic allies for Donald Trump over the next two years? Well, I think I agree with Dr. Gillespie. I think that they are making practical decisions, meaning the base uh, in their mind, uh, civility is not as important as what are we getting out of it. And I think they're making a decision about that. And they want, they're very partisan, we're very tribal in Georgia. And what they want out of it, the base, is winning. They want Republicans winning. What David Perdue wants is to remain in the place that he is and so that he can carry out an economic agenda, uh, an agenda related to reforming government to be more business-like. Um, that's always been something that he's been in there for. And as again, like Dr. Gillespie said, that's that's just, you know, being in it for what you're in it for. You know, I was a Republican largely for uh, for much of my interest in Republican Party um, activity was prison reform. And I worked a lot on that. I worked a lot on school choice. I wasn't always happy about the candidates that I, were work I was working with, but I was very happy about progress on those things. And lots of people are making those kinds of decisions. Pragmatic decisions. And, and, there, and there, there are several degrees in these pragmatic decisions. All, all you have to do, look, look no further than Nick Ayers. He was. He was. He was. He was. He is. He is still Mike Pence's chief of staff. He he had a chance to become Donald Trump's chief of staff. He chose to put uh, three or four states between him and the White House. <laughs> and yet, and yet, he, you know, and yet he's going to head up a a super PAC that will support Trump's reelection. So he's got. He's 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 put some some physical distance between himself and 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 Trump. Uh, and yet he's, he's, he's made a point not to alienate the people behind Trump. And Jim, creating that infrastructure is still a very powerful offering, even if you don't end up using it for, you know, for, for the guy who's currently the commander in chief who's saying he's going to run in 2020. Uh, Nick Ayers and others building that political infrastructure is going to be good for whomever does take that mantle in the same way um, what Stacey Abrams built as infrastructure in Georgia. Um, that's going to be very helpful to whomever follows um, in, in that for 2020. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, we'll see, again, this is Friday afternoon. If you're listening to us live, uh, we'll see what happens. Midnight's the deadline for uh, passing a continuing resolution. And uh, by the time you're watching this on Sunday morning, you'll know what we don't uh, right now. Um, Jim, let's talk a bit about the president and the farm bill. The farm bill, you know, he, he did, in the midst of all the chaos, he did, we was able to sign a farm bill that was very difficult to get passed through Congress. There were a lot of problems uh, uh, getting it through, but he did not, but the farm bill excluded a, uh, a something that Sonny Perdue and the president wanted very much, and that's to add new requirements for work for SNAP benefits, what we used to call food stamp benefits. Right, and if, if, if I'm not mistaken, under you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I think the farm bill is almost, in terms of funding, it's about 80 percent 
of 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 food stamp money, SNAP SNAP yes. benefits. Yes, and it's and and so it's it's this. It is uh, since since the 60s, it's been this this uh, very interesting uh, alliance between farmers and and urban politicians, uh, uh, and and if you don't have both. The farm bill doesn't move, uh, so in order to in order to move that farm bill, you had to pretty much drop those work requirements. And now, now that the bill is, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that it's been signed yet. As, yeah, I, he signed it he, just he, the okay, other day. Okay, all right, okay, he has signed it, but and now that that's passed, you've got Sonny Perdue, the agricultural secretary, uh, deciding that he is going to try to impose a lot of those work requirements. Uh, unilaterally. Yes. Uh, yeah. You've got to you've got to have some of those things that are meaningful to the Republican base because this is a massive farm bill. I mean, it's huge, and I think there are many Republicans starting to wondering what are we getting for all this spending? I mean, we're adding to the national debt. We're we're, we're spending more than any Democrat ever spent, and so we've got to be getting some conservative pieces out of this, and that work requirement was one of them. I want to get more out of this subject, but before we go there, I want to show you a tweet that President Trump posted shortly after signing the farm bill. Yes, this does come from the president's own Twitter account. Here it is. Megan Mullally at the 2005 or 6 Emmy Awards. Um, <laughs> this was how President Trump decided, Andra, to celebrate the passage of the Farm Bill. Now, I have to wonder, first of all, if I'm a Georgia farmer, if I'm down there in South Georgia, I'm not sure that's the image of a farmer. That's a, to me, that's a relatively offensive image of what a farmer is. Well, I'm still processing this because this is the first time um, that yeah. I've looked at it, and I didn't look at those Emmy Awards that year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there are a number of things that President Trump has to deal with in terms of his image on these types of issues. Um, one, I think that there are claims that will probably continually be made and probably increasingly made that he panders to certain constituencies in order to get their support. Right. And so you are framing that in a way that would suggest that people will look at that and be offensive. On the other hand, it does evoke nostalgia um, and nostalgia is a very powerful tool. I think in some ways it helped to get him elected. And so for somebody who liked Green Acres and thought the show was funny, we will forget that Oliver was actually inept um, as a character <laughs> on the show um, and say that this is his way of identifying wow. with folks. Um, and, you know, I'm, so I'm thinking about this, you know, as an academic perspective, I'm, I'm, you know, my mother grew up on a farm. So, you know, this is not something that, you know, would be completely unfamiliar to me. I think, you know, there's there's more that's going on there. And I think sort of let's, thinking let's, about let's, the yeah, other. Let's, let's, let's put it this way. You would have had to have been watching TV in 1965 to get that joke. Uh, well, no, actually, actually, on Saturday morning at 7 o'clock, if you're watching TV, you can watch Green Acres. Hey, you know, Andre Gillespie, every, we have, you are one of the panelists who's been with us for a while now. And because of that, we learn new things about you and other panelists all the time. Who would have ever thought you were a Green Acres fan? I'm a, I'm a classic TV buff. So, like, yeah, so, like, you can still watch Green Acres. Like, and, and, you know, and, someone, and, and, I, and growing up in Virginia, too, I saw that as a rock of 
fellow Republican comes down from Manhattan to be a farmer, then farming is a cool thing. So I joined the FFA, Future Farmers of America. All right. So let's get back, Stephen, to take I, I, I just I threw that in because it's, you know, it's Christmas week coming up. I thought we needed a little lighthearted something or other in there. But Stephen, um, the the SNAP work requirement was pulled out of the farm bill. It couldn't have passed if it had stayed in there. But now uh, with the president's support, Secretary of Agriculture Purdue is saying I'm going to unilaterally, with the White House's backing, uh, reinst- they're not reinstating a work requirement. What they're doing is states have been able to take a waiver from the work requirement. And something like 40 states do take that waiver to allow them to give SNAP benefits to people who otherwise wouldn't qualify because they're not fulfilling the work requirement. Here in Georgia, uh, there's something like uh, th- something like a million and a half Georgians who participated in SNAP, and I think it's 38 counties where uh, the level of poverty or unemployment is such that uh, the waiver has applied to them. This would kill that. Right. And I think, you know, and I would like to add, you know, I have family who are farmers down in South Georgia, and uh, there's a lot more drawl that would be in their version of singing Green Acres. <laughs> but when you think about that, I, when you think about the typical people that SNAP benefits, and you think about how many people it affects, it's not an abstract political issue buried somewhere in a farm bill. That's why it's become a key issue in the House and the Senate here, that it's something that affects real people and is a tangible uh, tangible impact that politicians can see with their constituents and that other people can see about this. And so this is something that if Secretary Perdue goes through with, I, you know, I don't think you'll hear the end of it from many, many people. Yeah, and, 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 and you do already have some counties in Georgia experimenting with 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 uh, imposing, I think Cobb, Cobb County mm-hmm. is yep. one. Uh, I'm not sure of any. Uh, th- there are a couple more out there that I just can't call off the top of my head. So there are two things that I think I would point out here. One, when you're thinking about SNAP, particularly with respect to social welfare, this is something that also affects children. And mm. so it becomes a question of and this is why this is a, such a lightning rod issue and why that like, you know, you wouldn't want this in a farm bill, perhaps, is because you could be potentially taking stuff away from children. I know, like, the Cobb County sort of work rules, those are for able-bodied adults, but I think people do automatically sort of think about children that might be, in fact, affected by this, um, and rightly or wrongly, and so that's something to keep in mind. The other thing to point out is that this notion of executive unilateralism, right? And so for people who are highly critical of Barack Obama using executive orders when Congress wouldn't pass stuff, right, this is now using the regulatory process. Um, And so, you know, the argument here is that, well, regulations have to be based in law, well, so do executive orders, uh, technically, too. And so if you have a problem with unilateralism, then, you know, just remember that, like, you know, there are critiques of, of Democrats who have done this and critiques of Republicans who have done this. Yeah, yeah. Leo? No, no, fair enough. I mean, and, you know, elections have consequences. And Trump would say, well, you created the rules. I'm just following them. And I break them as, you know, as much as they're breakable. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way right now. We have a lot more we want to talk about, uh, but you're listening and watching Political Rewind. We'll be right back. You count on GPB to bring you reporting that helps you better understand our community and our world. And now, in these final days of 2018, we're especially counting on you. Listeners like you make the trusted, independent news coverage you depend on possible. As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. There's still time to make your tax-deductible year-end gift. 
go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, Jim Galloway, um, there, the uh, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, after the Parkland uh, massacre, awful, awful shootings, uh, uh, impaneled a school safety commission and looked at how they can make schools safer, an issue that obviously has been of concern to a great many people. Um, they came back with their recommendations the other day. One of them was that law enforcement should, in fact, work with schools to f identify personnel who could be trained in, with fi in firearm uh, usage uh, to, to, to carry guns on campuses. The other one that was a little bit more uh, unusual was they recommended rolling back Obama-era uh, initiatives, which were an effort to protect African-American and minority students were being disciplined at a far greater rate than other stu students. And they still are. Yeah. And they still are. And, well, and they put in place rules that they hoped would, would um, stop that, but it, but it hasn't mm -hmm. completely. But the DeVos people now are saying one way that we can get make schools safer is to rescind that uh, uh, initiative by President Obama. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, well, number one, I think it's opportunistic rather than uh, than something that actually fits within the realm of the study itself. Because if 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 this study was indeed directed at at stopping mass shootings in in school venues, well, then you have to look at who's doing the shootings, and it, they're they're not African American students. They're 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 troubled young white men. So it's it's really interesting in terms of thinking about this. So and, and a plug for my book, for those who claim Obama didn't do anything for African-Americans, the fact that there are these things that are being rescinded that were trying to address racial disparities, I think, is evidence of the fact that there were attempts to actually address some of these issues. So I first kind of became aware of this um, from Kimberly Crenshaw. So Kimberly Crenshaw is the godmother of intersectionality, sort of a, a legal theorist. Um, and she pointed out, and so I'm quoting this off the top of my head, so I hope I'm getting it right, that black boys were about nine times as likely as white boys to be suspended from school and black girls were about four times as likely as black girls to be suspended from school. And we've heard the stories. You've seen like, you know, the kindergartner who gets like, you know, arrested for acting up in school, even here in Georgia within the last week or so. Um, there were kids who took candy bars from an open vending machine and we saw a kid get body slammed over an 85 cent candy bar. Right. It's the type of measure. So it's not People don't want discipline in schools, but it's a question of if the race of this child were different, would this be dealt with with detention? Would this be dealt with with in-school suspension? People go from, it seems like, zero to 100 sometimes with black kids in ways that they don't always, and that that might be informed by implicit biases. And so this was what was the intention behind this. And so the idea that you have to remove this in order to make sure that you don't have, you know, a kid who has threatened people, um, literally, or, you know, people who, who have been reported it to the FBI, like can't get suspended from school so that they don't, that they don't shoot a place up. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. To me. So one of the things that I think, and I ask you all to weigh in on this, and as long as the ball's in your court, Andre, please, you go first. Um, it, it strikes me, a senior administration official in commenting on the commission, here's the quote, students are afraid because violent students were going unpunished. Now, the notion that you would remove the Obama-era rules that were supposed to uh, uh, take racial discrimination out of school punishment 
and then somehow hold it up against this notion that violent students were going unpunished. I'd love to have seen the data that they were looking at that suggested to them it was African-American students who were being the most violent, and therefore the Obama rules were, in, were making schools less safe. So I don't know what data they had, but this looks like this is actually rem um, reminiscent of studies where we do know um, that certain types of uh, behaviors are more associated with African-Americans. So blacks are more likely to be perceived as aggressive. Blacks are more likely to be perceived as violent. Blacks are actually perceived to be older, and there are implications for young people in really important ways. So somebody like a Tamir Rice who's 12 might look to be 16 or 18 um, to a cop, which means you're more likely to shoot him instead of realizing that this is really a kid who has a toy gun. Or if a girl, uh, um, you know, is perceived to be older than she's supposed to be more sexually experienced, which means you don't take her claims of sexual assault seriously or you treat her as a runaway as, mm -hmm. opposed to, uh, as a potential kidnapping victim. And so what they're doing is intentionally or unintentionally playing into stereotypes um, about black violence, aggressiveness, pathology, um, and then using that as a justification for things that African-Americans actually aren't necessarily right. disproportionately, well, Dr. like, you know, perceived to be involved in. Yeah. And I think we're conservatives sometimes, even when they agree with this is a problem and we need to address this problem, the, the delivery of the solution is where conservatives often disagree or don't understand. I mean, when you think about the boys initiative that Barack Obama, President Barack Obama laid out, a lot of people, including a lot of black middle class folks, were like, what is this really doing? And where's, where's, where are the metrics? What is the outcome? The same thing here. I mean, so these these issues that we talk about, how are they, are they shaped by Hollywood perceptions of black boys and black men? Are they shaped by police officers' own training and response to black men? So de-escalation training might be more effective than some, some of these programs that that are happening. Right, but I mean, it's a question of would you actually receive the research? So if I gave mm -hmm. you research by Rashawn Ray at the University of Maryland or Jennifer Eberhardt um, at Stanford, would you believe this or would you sit and argue to say that, no, this hasn't been informed by you? And so where did this perception of the black brute come from? I mean, I could go back, you know, hundreds of years in American society and culture and literature, um, um, you know, 100 years in film and see these images. They're pervasive, but people oftentimes don't want to recognize that they're there and that they're actually influencing how we behave today. Jim, uh, I, the the uh, other part of this that has caused uh, caught a lot of attention is this arming, you know, training and arming people, uh, personnel within a school. Uh, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Georgia responds to that, especially with a conservative governor about to uh, take office. And 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 look, it's going to that that that's something that's going to vary from, from uh, by geography. Yeah, I, I, we already have a couple of counties that have done that. Right, right. right. And I would look. I, I would I would assume that yeah. I, I would assume that in in rural Georgia, you have a good many teachers who who are who are packing in some fashion. Right. Uh, uh, Maybe you have them in, in within the city of Atlanta. I don't know. Uh, in the burbs, this is where it doesn't go down well. Uh, I think this is, uh, and, and you, uh, uh, I mean, you, you, you saw this, uh, it took, what, 14 months for the, uh, for, uh, for, the uh, for, for bump stocks to be banned uh, by uh, by the federal government just happened this week. Yep, 14 months after 50 people were killed by by a shooter uh, from a high-rise hotel in uh, Las Vegas. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and, and you look at and you look at the actual report, and I have the table of contents here. It doesn't actually mention many things about firearms and guns themselves. It's things like cyberbullying and school safety, violent entertainment and rating systems, and the efficacy of age restrictions for other things. And so, th this also the document says that it doesn't provide any sort of mandates or this is how we think you should do it. And I think that's mirrored by Governor-elect Brian Kemp at some of the press conferences he held on the campaign trail, saying there is no one-size-fits-all school safety plan for schools, so he's going to work with local leaders and different things. And I think what you see, that the danger in reports like these or responses to reports like these is there is no umbrella solution and there is no umbrella term that either lawmakers mandate or that systems and schools want. And so this is more, this report is more guidelines about addressing some of the problems. And the other thing that's interesting, Bill, in this report is they have a section dedicated to the effects of press coverage on mass shootings. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the things that uh, they recommend that the news media does is not mention the name or pictures of somebody who carries out an act of school shooting and violence and things like that. And it says that uh, there's some figure here. I don't know exactly how many people are where it's from, but it says 80% of people think media coverage of mass shootings makes offenders famous. And it says the American Psychological Association released a study that said the prevalence of mass shootings has risen in relation to the coverage of mass shootings. So that was an interesting media release. Well, again, I, I can't help but wonder what the data is to support that. I don't. I think we might fairly say, Andra that when there is a school shooting, um, as, there, as with any other major news story, when you're a cable news network with 24 hours to fill, you are going to fill it with over, repeated images of students fleeing from the school with victims being brought out, all those awful images that we hate to see. So it may be perfectly fine to say you're overdoing it, media, as you do so many things, but to make a correlation between that and encouraging more school violence strikes me as specious. So the way Stephen describes the APA study, it sounds like an observational study. So, um, you know, we know things are correlated together, but we can't make certain causal inferences. And this one is, is, is hard because, you know, the way to do this would be through some sort of randomization, whether it happens naturally out, you know, in the world or whether or not, you know, we force it in some type of laboratory setting. So nobody, you would never be able to get through an institutional review board, sort of the permission to like do a certain type of study where we try to randomize certain things related to shootings because it's just that touchstone of an issue. Yeah. So, you know, there could be ways where, you know, I could imagine sort of randomly assigning survey respondents to, you know, read about a school shooting with a lot of biographical information about the shooter and not, and then looking at what their reaction mm -hmm. is. But that's just like an attitudinal sort of question. Yeah, a lot of people think that, but we don't know that right, without right, further right, right. evidence. And it's hard and it's touchy and we have to think about ethics as we do right. those kinds and, and of studies. And you have to think about actual journalism. And yeah. journalism is about when you have a shooting like this, the first question people want to know after after they find out uh, the, the, the scope of the of, 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 of the incident incident is why the why? killer did what he did. Yeah. You cannot do that without a name. All right, we got to move on. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about. You know what? Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back uh, with our last segment. And we still have more to talk about that we're going to possibly uh, be able to get into the show. You're watching and listening to Political Rewind. I'm Ira Plato. 
This week on Science Friday, the secret life of prions, misfolded proteins that lead to deadly brain diseases, and the ongoing fight against chronic wasting disease in deer. Plus, are we living in the age of schadenfreude? Why taking pleasure in another person's misfortune isn't always a bad thing. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Today at 3 on GPB. Every day, GPB brings you fact-based news coverage, engaging interviews, and smart entertainment you don't find elsewhere, all thanks to your support. Before 2018 comes to a close, please do your part to keep public broadcasting strong here in Georgia and beyond. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now. Go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. That's gpb.org or 800-222-4788. Thank you and happy holidays. Joined today on Political Rewind by Jim Galloway, Dr. Andre Gillespie, uh, Leo Smith, and uh, our own Stephen Fowler. Jim, this is kind of a stunning uh, headline, and you pointed it out in the way that you all at the Political Insider wrote it. A hundred years later, the U.S. Senate says lynching should be a crime. Yeah. They just this week passed a bill making it a federal crime. Crime. Well, yes, the Senate did. Uh, yeah, as, as uh, I don't think that the House, yeah. The, yeah, the, the House hasn't taken it up. Hasn't Thank taken you. It up Thank yet. you. Uh, it is. Uh, it's. It's one of those situations where I, th- I think a few years back, uh, Mississippi, Mississippi finally passed, uh, approved the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah. Uh, and and it, this is one of those, except it's got it, it does have some more relevance here, because uh, this was uh, we've had uh, we had maybe almost 200 anti-lynching bills come before Congress uh, from the period starting maybe uh, from starting in 1918. Uh, lynching was a feature of 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 the South from 1870 uh, from 1870 onward. Uh, pretty much, as 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 you had a, a white society trying to win back what it had lost on the battlefield. All right. So uh, the House passed the I think the, it passed the House successfully for the first time in 1922, an anti-lynching law. Okay, and starting then the blockade cons- was consistently it, 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 the, the 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 legislation was consistently defeated in the Senate by a block of Southern Democrats. Yes, and the leader of that block of Southern Democrats was none other than George's own Richard Russell, who was uh, often in the forefront of uh, blocking measures that would have advanced the civil rights of African Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why historians and presidential scholars who study race, you know, see sort of places where Franklin Roosevelt in particular starts to equivocate. So, you know, these efforts, you know, by the NAACP were continuing into uh, the the Roosevelt administration. And while Eleanor Roosevelt was a vocal champion of civil rights issues, there were places where Franklin Roosevelt would actually uh, step back. And it was in part in deference to Southern Democrats. Um, as a result of this, and so this is, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, certain things did not pass. And what, what, what was interesting... Let me just real quickly sure. say that uh, if you're watching on TV, on the screen, you're seeing images from uh, Moore's Ford Bridge, where we have one of the worst uh, racial uh, murders uh, in the 40s, I think. 1947, in the, yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, never been solved. Still, to this day, hasn't been solved. Go ahead. Right. No, what I was was saying is, you, you, we caught a glimpse of this shortly after John McCain died. When, when uh, Chuck Schumer, the New York senator, uh, proposed uh, renaming the Richard B. Russell building 
uh, uh, in Washington after John McCain. And one of the reasons cited was was uh, Russell's uh, consistent blocking of not just anti-lynching uh, legislation, but civil rights legislation in general. Leo, uh, one of the things that uh, the AJC's article on this did was to actually uh, link to an older AJC piece, which uh, was about a report that had been published that showed how many more lynchings we had in the South than people had previously understood. Between essentially Reconstruction and 1950, there were 589 lynchings of African Americans in Georgia. The only state who had more, that had more was Mississippi with 654. And when those Americans of African descent began to progress and began to have economic wins, um, those lynchings increased. And that is a, a very terrible thing, something that I think someone like Senator Tim Scott, um, as a Republican, you know, it's interesting that— He's one of, He was one of the sponsors he was of one, this I think he was the key leader of this effort. And again, that's one of those positioning yourself with a party at a time and with a president to get certain things done. And I think his effort, we're seeing a lot of this kind of thing come to fore because of him. So I want to give Senator Scott all of his due on this, but I think it should be pointed out that his primary co-sponsors are Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Cory Booker. So it's the three black senators um, who are pushing this forward. And I want to say that they would have done this regardless of who was president. They would have pushed. I'm not so sure they would have been able to get as much movement um, without Tim Scott being at the table and and with his fellow allies and conservatives. Right. Right. So, I mean, point taken on that, but I think it's also really important. It's the three black senators. Yeah, where are three? Right. right. Where Richard are the three. white senators stepping it, it, up and signing the bill to make it clear that whites uh, are as offended as African-Americans? So I think that that's important, but this is an important lesson about why descriptive representation matters. So why it matters to have chambers that actually reflect the diversity uh, of okay. the country. Right. So these senators, you know, take this because their constituents are telling them that this is, you know, part of their own familial heritage, particularly in the case of, you know, Senator Scott and Booker. Um, and so, you know, they are sensitive to it because it is part of their personal legacy. And so it's this is the reason why we care about the number of blacks or the number of Latinos or the number of women in chambers, because oftentimes because of their experience and the experience of their families, they put forward legislation to address That's issues that are such important. a great point. One of the, you know, you were you were refer referencing that study of of uh, of, of lynchings uh, in, mm, in, in Georgia. In Georgia. One of the fascinating things I saw was was thought was was that. The vast, the largest number of those lynchings occurred within Fulton County. It was a, it, it was a big city phenomenon as much as a rural phenomenon. Okay, fascinating. Well, I think that goes to Leo's point well, about point how where progress was happening, where industrialization and innovation and, com and, and and competing with whites in the capitalistic system started to flourish. That's when this thing started All to right. happen. Well, I, he, this bill passed the Senate. It would have to pass in the House, but we're coming to the end of a of a biennial session. Right. So, so, it, was, so it, was a, it, was it was a token measure in many ways, since it's not going to ever uh, be a lot, unless it's brought back in the new session. Well, well, and it's a democratically controlled process. Well, I understand. Yeah. No, no, I get that, but they have to start over again, yeah. is my yes. point. Yes, yeah. they will. Uh, all right. Um, let's move on. Uh, real quick, this is a quick, no, I, I, not a quick point. First, Michael Williams, then Stacey Abrams, presidential candidate, okay? Jim Galloway, Michael Williams ran for governor, Republican, ran for governor. He finished 
Last, he did some things that uh, during his campaign the people found very offensive, a deportation bus, which he took until it broke down on him. Uh, at one point during the campaign, he and his campaign manager announced that they were outraged because computers had been stolen from their campaign office. What's happened? What's the right. update uh, this, this was, week? This was just before the primary uh, on, on May 22nd. Uh, oh, a break in, you know, shades of Watergate. And now uh, Williams has been indicted for f filing a false insurance claim. Yeah, uh, we don't know what happened to those computers, but he cannot show any records, apparently, about the computers or an insurance. He did file that insurance claim. Clearly, he wouldn't have been uh, he wouldn't have been indicted for insurance fraud. Uh, uh, and, and he is uh, the, the 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 local uh, DA has said that he's agreed to turn himself in. And yeah. now and now these computers. What makes it even more eyebrow raising at the time and now is that these weren't ordinary computers. They were servers used to mine cryptocurrencies. Yes. So they ran twenty four seven to mine Bitcoin and other things, which at one point was a very lucrative thing and they were in Michael Williams campaign headquarters and they were worth about $300,000 and um, and so these cryptocurrency mining servers disappeared and I guess this is where this indictment stems from so there are a lot of questions surrounding what exactly happened, where they went, uh, why there was a Bitcoin mining operation in a candidate's campaign headquarters, and why nobody seems to know uh, how those were gone. But you know, Leo, if we need any more proof about the Trumpization of much of American politics, we really need to look no further than the way Michael Williams' former campaign manager and spokesman, Seth Weathers, responded when the AJC contacted him about the indictment. He essentially said, this is what happens when a conservative uh, presents himself, offers himself for offers, uh, office, they go after him. It's the dark state, Leo. Well, that's a, um, a trope that has played well in many places, and he's doing a good job of staying in that vein. Well, I mean, I think the response to that is call me back when Clay Tippins and Hunter Hill and Casey Cagle get indicted for something that went on in their campaign. And so, like, you can't make that argument when, like, all the other people who ran seem to have gotten through, like, indictment-free. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, all right. I did want to move on to a quick item. Stacey, all right, here it is, Jim. This is fascinating. Uh, at, I'm looking at the time frame here. Stephen, you may have it. I don't. Rolling Stone uh, published an article in which they named the top 20 or so uh, likely Democratic candidates for president, and they ranked them in order. They put Stacey Abrams at number five in their list. Now, that would be interesting, but not so much, except that her former campaign manager and the woman still very tightly, uh, closely tied to her as she moves forward with the, uh, their federal lawsuit on voter suppression and other irregularities in Georgia voter, Lauren Grow Wargo tweeted, 2020 will be interesting, so many great folks, but Rolling Stone is confused. Stacey Abrams is number one. If she wants it, she said she would build a new multiracial ethnic coalition, and she goes on from there. 
Lauren does not do that without Abrams involved in the decision to do that. Well, I think, I mean, first and foremost, as Abrams' campaign manager, it's her job to manage a campaign, real, imaginary, or potential. So, <laughs> you know, so keeping, keeping Stacey Abrams at the forefront of the conversation, whether it's 2020 for president, 2020 for Senate, John Lewis's seat, anything like that's Lauren's job. But it does bring up many interesting questions that two of the top five, both Stacey Abrams and Beta O'Rourke, did not win their elections, yet they're at the top of this, uh, you know, admittedly, Rolling Stone is not the end-all, be-all of deciding the leaderboard of who's running where, but that these candidates that are being talked about didn't win their elections, yet they still have this staying power on people's minds, and in part because of campaign managers saying, my candidate would be number one in this. So it's really interesting to see how much Stacey Abrams' political career stays in the spotlight leading up to 2020 beyond the fair fight action and the voting The other things. part of that, of course, is both Beto O'Rourke and, and Stacey Abrams raised buckets and yeah. buckets yeah. of right. money, yeah. and they right. still have it. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, I think there are a couple of interesting things to think about there. So one, I mean, I think Stacey Abrams' political future is bright, um, and, you know, she's not going anywhere. And yeah. she's made that clear personally, and even if she hadn't, I would still be saying the same thing. Um, I think in some ways this is partially an equity issue. So, you know, you have, you know, both her and Andrew Gillum and Beto O'Rourke, they all lose these high profile races. They have narrow margins. And then Beto O'Rourke, the white guy, is the one who sort of, you know, is the one who lots of people are pitting their Democratic hopes onto. And I think some people are saying, look, right, I mean, you know, these races in Florida and Georgia were actually closer uh, than the Texas race. So why aren't these candidates, you know, being considered as national contenders? I think you're totally right. I think it's actually really crazy to even though I see the, the momentum sort of gathering around Beto O'Rourke, I think it's crazy for people who haven't had that type of high-level executive experience to all of a sudden throw their hand in the race for president. Right. But you know what? If you are, then you need to be equal well, opportunity. Although, although, but I, would, I would say, I would say that, that, that Stacey Abrams, since November 6th, isn't doing the things that you do if you're actually running for president. Let's put that out there. Number one, I mean, she. What? What, what was her first action after after conceding uh, in in November? It was to set up a lawsuit right. to take apart Georgia's, not right. the U.S. Uh, voting system, but Georgia's interior electoral system. Yeah, uh, that tells me that she's got her focus on this. Yeah, I think that's probably right. By the way, to be fair to Rolling Stone, uh, in response to your comments, Andra. They put Kamala Harris as number one in their roundup of, of top candidates. Joe Biden uh, number is yeah. number two. That's a nod to people my age. We, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Beto is number three. Bernie Sanders is four. Stacey is five. And uh, Sherrod Brown is uh, number six. So you're certainly right. It is a roundup mostly of white men. Uh, but I think it's more the, the, the Beto versus Stacey Abrams yeah. versus Andrew Gillum. Yeah. All of them lost, right? But right. only one of them, like, you know, is the one that tends right. to be at the top of most yeah. people's presidential list. Yeah. All you know, right. Those three also give me a little bit of hope in the sense of they're not so much characters as they are very good organizers. And I think that's something that's being underestimated as, as to their gifts um, and, and that they are good administrators and, and very good organizers, all three of them. You know, not that I, I disagree with them totally, mostly on their politics, but they are good organizers and they do create movements. And so it may look their strategy looks different than what we're used to. Um, all right. One of the things that we should point out, by the way, is that the uh, 
Democratic National Committee, as long as we're uh, talking about this stuff, has now announced already their debate uh, schedule for uh, 2017, uh, 2019 and 2020. And, you know, Jim, I've said on this show a couple times now, it is not too soon to start talking about presidential politics, and it's not. The first, they're proposing 12 debates, mm. six in 2019, six in 2020, with the first one next April. That's tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, and with as many people you see throwing their hats in the ring or something in the ring, you know, uh, you, could, you could have what we saw on the Republican side. Uh, in yeah. 2016, mm -hmm. which is just a, a, a stage full of people who get maybe 90 seconds of, of airtime apiece. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, you know, you saw at least six, seven, eight, a million come and campaign for Stacey Abrams during the, you know, general election. So the Georgia ties will be strong because you have, you know, several sitting senators, you know, California, Colorado, everywhere. You have all these different politicians that have come to Georgia already to campaign. So if one of those debates is held in Georgia, the airwaves will be clogged. All right. Well, we I have yet we're going to not going to talk about it today, but on a show fairly soon. Uh, we've got to talk about whether Georgia really will be in play in the 2020 presidential race. And I think, I think by the by by the first or second week in January, we're going to know a whole lot than we do. Why? Know. Why then? Because because then by then you will have people like like uh, like Stacey Abrams, like uh, Teresa Tomlinson. Uh, making some decisions, sending some signals. Oh, on the, on, the, on, on on a U.S. Senate race on the Senate race. Yeah, yep, yep. Right. And 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 when when that happens, yeah, then then you're going to see uh, what to Stephen's point, you're going to see uh, uh, presidential candidates start coming through here. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's that. I think looking at how narrow the margins were in this race, you know, I would be surprised at this point. This could all change, you know, within the mm -hmm. next year if Georgia weren't considered a battleground state at least for like the first part of like you know the summer of 2020 right right you know you know maybe this all gets resolved by around labor day but at least at first i can imagine from my own sort of you know work back in the day a long time ago uh with john Kerry's poster that you have that like long list of 15 sort of battleground states that gets narrower and narrower sure. as you get closer to the election george is probably going to be in at least that first the first round that first round. yeah that makes yes. perfect sense well that'll be fun i hope you're right all right um just a couple more minutes on today's show jim um, I turn to you on this first because you and I both knew, have known him for a long, long time, and I, I think you've known him well, too. Vernon Keenan, the director of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, announced uh, two days ago that he is finally retiring. Almost 40 years with GBI, 15 or more as the agency's director, involved in some of the most high-profile crimes over his four decades at the GBI. I mean, we're going back to, to the murdered and missing children back yep. in the early 70s. Both he and his fedora are going away. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's interesting that you've already got some people. This is, look, this, this is one of those prime uh, governmental spots that just doesn't turn over that yeah. often. Yeah. So there's a great deal of competition to, to replace him. Uh, one name we're hearing already is, is Cobb County's DA, uh, Vic Reynolds. Yes. Vernon was a cop's cop. That's the only way to say it. You're right. He wore his fedora everywhere he went. He was kind of a tough-talking guy, although he had a very, very uh, uh, smushy kind of heart. He was a really has-been, he still is, a really lovely guy. Uh, we won't go into his career right now, but uh, Vernon Keenan will 
uh, definitely be missed. I called him yesterday and uh, congratulated him on his retirement. He said, if I'd stayed there any longer, I think my wife would have just walked out the door <laughs> because she retired like 15 years ago. So Vernon Keenan, we really wish you well as you move forward. Any of you have to deal with him at all? You never did, Stephen. No. You're too young. No, he has been at the GBI longer than I've been alive. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> right. I've never had to deal with him. <laughs> I said to when I called him, I said, I can finally uh, do that crime spree I've been uh, planning <laughs> now that you're leaving. All right, we're out of time for today's show. Jim Galloway, Andrew Gillespie, uh, Stephen Fowler, and Leo Smith, thank you. Uh, to all of you out there, this is our final live show of 2018. So first and foremost, I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. We've really loved having you with us for this past year and hope you stay with us in the year ahead. 2019 is going to be every bit as exciting, if not more exciting, than 2018 has been. So again, a very happy holidays from all of us here at Political Rewind. See you next year.